This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Some of the discussions featured on the show are technical, while others are higher level. I'm Arthur Falls, and today, Jack DeRose explains his social collaboration platform, Colony, and his old job, designing the most expensive work of art ever sold. How's it going, Jack? Good, how are you? Fantastic. Excellent. Awesome. Hey, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me, eh? Yeah, pleasure. Nice to, uh, nice to meet you. Could you explain what your background is and how you came to be involved in, uh, in Ethereum? Sure. So um, my background is actually as a, I used to run a jewelry company um, and we used to make really fancy high-end fine jewelry. Um, you can check it out at drose.co if you have any interest at all. Um, and uh, along the way, I kind of had, I, I discovered that I'd got this um, problem with managing a, a distributed workforce and it uh it occurred to me that there, there must be a solution to this. And at the same time, I was really interested in Bitcoin. I'd um, just gotten absolutely fascinated by Bitcoin and the possibilities of the blockchain. And Christmas 2012, I guess it was, or 2013, um, I just randomly got sent Vitalik's white paper um, and I just sort of, consumed it and was absolutely fascinated by by his ideas so it was it was really really earlier that this seems like quite a leap to go from uh jewelry design and uh or and retail to uh to developing on a uh, on ethereum um yeah i guess it is a bit of a leap i mean our company really was um it was a tech company as much anything we did 3d uh, modeling computer aided design that was sort of our our angle um so it wasn't as big a as big a as big a jump as it seems um because we're already very sort of technically savvy but um yeah i mean I, a product is a product at the end of the day so i think that creating one thing if you know how to create one thing you can create others it sounds to me like the kind of jewelry design you guys were involved in uh was software oriented or uh, or cad oriented am i am- exactly yeah we did computer aided design and 3d printing in order to make things um that really couldn't be made any other way um and that was that's always been my view of technology uh, is that too often people a new technology comes along and people just want to recreate all the same things that already exist using this different me- method and I think we see a lot of that going on uh, in the ethereum space at the moment I always feel that new technology is not there to just do the same things that have gone before it's actually it potentiates new things and and that's that should be the focus looking at the uh looking at the jewelry you guys design and kind of and thinking about this it seems like this is an example of jewelry design the skills behind jewelry design and manufacture um intersecting with the t- the tools required to build a new uh a new organizational language <laughs> yeah they are quite different um but i think that the uh the the 
the learning from that jewelry um, business really was that we had got a distributed workforce of probably 70 people, I guess, uh, at some points, and they were based all over the world because in order to make things at that level, you really need the most highly skilled people that exist. Um, and by definition, those are pretty rare. So managing that kind of distributed workforce was a real pain. And it occurred to me that there must be some solution to this. Uh, I, I had been asked by a client if I could sort of help her with a, a similar business, and I just thought, really, do I have to? Um, and, and that kind of that pain that I obviously felt um, sort of spurred me on to think, oh, yeah, there must be a solution. And in doing so, I kind of realized, actually, that the problem was a lot bigger, that, um, you know, this, this thing of people being split all over the world and essentially the talent is very distributed, um, but opportunity tends to aggregate in a few places around the world. So it occurred to me that there the should be a solution to that problem. So that being the case, could you please explain the uh, the concept of of colony and uh, and how you came about to actually developing this uh, this software sure um well colony is a social collaboration platform essentially it's a platform for decentralized autonomous organizations it means that anybody anywhere in the world can start a, a company if you like uh, or an organization as easily as they could start a facebook group or a meetup group or something along those lines and start engaging people. Um, and what the system does is everybody contributes effort to to this project, and the system sort of tracks everything that people do and distributes ownership of the, of the project or organisation to people proportionate to the value that they've contributed. Um, so that is done in the form of a token issued on top of Ethereum? Correct. Okay, and so could you explain what the what the mechanics that underlie these uh, the interactions on the platform are? Sure. So, at a very simple level, you make a suggestion about something that you think your company should do. A colony is, is like a company, but you know it's on the blockchain, I suppose. So you can make a suggestion about something that you think should happen within your colony. Um, people vote on whether they agree with that or not they give feedback on it comment uh people get in debate then the system decides whether or not uh that decision has been made based on the reputations of all of the people that have been voting um if it's something that has been agreed then you collaboratively create a brief of what actually needs to be done and that can typically be broken down into a number of a number of different tasks which have got specific sort of skills attached to them. Once the system can tell that the briefs or the, uh, the briefs of the tasks are sufficiently well resolved um, by the way that people are, are sort of voting on them, um, the system moves on to the next stage, which is to find people from within the colony who can actually deliver these tasks. So the system comes with a short list of potential candidates by comparing their reputational profile with some tags that have been agreed are, are relevant to the um, to the brief. And then, again, people vote on who they would most like to do the task by suggesting how much they think should be paid to these people in terms of ownership of the colony. 
um, they can accept the task, and if they do so, great. If not, then it gets offered to the person who's n- who was voted as being next in order of collective preference. And the nectar or, or ownership of the colony that they've been offered um, goes into an escrow contract. They do the work, submit it for evaluation, and if it's accepted, the um, the escrow contract releases the um, the ownership, the, the nectar, as we call it, to their personal wallet and they can do with it as they please. And the ultimate goal of that is that um, if the colony is something which generates revenue, the revenue uh, or a proportion of the revenue will be able to be distributed to their uh, to them in proportion to their nectar holdings. So, for example, if you own 10% of the colony and your colony has decided that it's going to distribute 100% of the revenue to all of the people who work in it, um, then you would be getting 10% of the revenue. This sounds like... I mean, in the uh, there's a blog post on your site that's extremely insightful. Yes. And uh, you made reference in it to um, yep. to ant colonies as an example of a complex adaptive system. And further on, you referenced uh, Zappos and their holacracy. And I'm not sure, did you reference um, Valve? I believe so, in passing. Yeah. Uh, um, because the, they have these... Uh, it seems like those are two organisations attempting to achieve this uh, uh, complex adaptive system, and I'm I'm wondering if because uh, you know holacracy always seemed a bit I was a bit dubious of what was going on at Zappos, and but you know Valve was incredibly successful with their anarcho syndicalist approach. What what are your opinions on uh, on these ways of doing things, and uh, and how have you uh, integrated kind of the lessons from these organisations into Colony. Interesting question. Um, so my underst- I, I've spoken to a lot of people who um, implement holacracy, um, including some of the people around uh, the the Zappos implementation, and I pretty much get the same feedback every time about it. It's that you know it's 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 very interesting as a system, uh, and it certainly helps to distribute. Um, authority but at the same time it's really difficult to for people to get on board with a lot of the time because it requires so many meetings and so many kind of processes that have to be gone through for things to to be um for things to be actioned according to the 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 proper process of of holacracy and that seems to be very very divisive um I don't know too much about um, Valve's approach, um, other than that it essentially relies upon self-organisation. So there are there's a very sort of thin upper management layer, and other than that, people can pretty much just be hired, and they're generally recommended by other people that work there. And you just go and attach yourself to whatever project will have you, and and seems cool to you. And it sort of seems to work almost like an internal market. Um, so the best projects tend to have the most people who are keen to work on them and therefore get done best or fastest, I suppose. I think that way Colony works is probably a bit different to either of those things. Um, I mean, it certainly has uh, more elements, I would say, of the Valve approach in as much as that people are able to join whatever kind of projects they want to and 
and that kind of proves to be the validation of the product project rather than um it being sort of reliant on um on specific hiring mechanisms this reminds me of uh, of Ronald Coase and his observation that a company should only exist where it can reduce the cost of a transaction relative to the market cost. So, Ronald Coase, uh, what, what's your uh, are, are you aware of his um, his his thinking and has that influenced you guys uh, in uh, in Colony at all? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, his one of his uh, concepts was that of transaction cost in in. In, in managing a workforce, so ideally your workforce would be based on a pure, you know, market-driven, price-market-driven mechanism, I suppose. But actually there's always a transaction cost in managing relationships between a company and a, and a supplier. So there comes a point where it's too expensive to have people who are just there to do specific tasks and, and then they kind of wander off and do their own thing. Um, because you need managers to do those. And this was exactly my problem with my jewellery company. I spent so much time managing other people um, that I couldn't actually do the hard technical work that, that I needed to do myself. Um, and so what Colony does is to try and eliminate that transaction cost of management by distributing it amongst all of the people who are contributing to a colony and aggregating their collective intelligence as though they were sort of one super intelligent manager. So it actually doesn't require there to be any single manager ever. There is no single point of failure in a colony, well, unless you've only got one person that knows about a particular thing, I suppose. Um, so so the transaction cost sort of tends to zero um, because people are incentivized by ownership of the of the project itself to do all of the things that kind of mediate those relationships. When you design colonies, is it something that you imagined reaching beyond just software development or, uh, or is this kind of a domain specific solution? I mean, as far as adoption goes. Um, no, I don't see it as being purely for software, although software is clearly the easiest um, approach to it because people are already quite familiar with working in distributed teams open source kind of works in a similar way um, and, and it's purely digital it's very easy to um, to share and validate the uh, the work that people have been doing so it's, it's it's the most obvious use case but I've been really surprised to see people approaching me from all sorts of different fields who are interested in using colony um, just recently, I was at a conference and um, I was approached by somebody from Malta who's interested in being able to use it to kind of create um, a community of purpose around the maker movement in Malta, which is currently very sort of fragmented and there's not really any kind of collaborative effort amongst all of the, the makers there. Um so they all kind of see one another as as competition and and don't work together whatsoever and she's aware that people in other places are able to be much more successful by sort of pooling their resources and working together to increase the um reputation of that area for uh for those particular kinds of crafts 
And so she's hoping to be able to use Colony to to encourage people to work together. Is this a case of a group of people who want to work together but don't necessarily have the tools prospecting Colony as, as a potential solution? I think so, yeah. That's, that seems to be what it is. Um, there's been other people who have approached me with other reasons, like uh, a guy, I think he was in India, who was interested in being able to use Colony um, as part of his farm um, for engaging new people to come and work with him, which I thought was a really fascinating use case I hadn't considered. But ultimately, I think, you know, pretty much everything these days is able to be digitizable, whether it's by check-ins or by um, GPS tracking or, or all sorts of different mechanisms. And as a result, I think it will be possible for most things which are sort of offline to be evidenced online. And, and that kind of evidence is the important thing. So, Jack, moving on to the internals of Colony and the uh, and and in particular the reputation system, because this is especially interesting. Um, how is the reputation system defined, and how is it employed to decide uh, to weight votes, etc.? Okay, um, so when you when you're working on Colony, um, pretty much everything that you do is judged by the system and you're you're compared in what you're doing to everybody else who's who's collaborating with you um so it's probably easiest to understand in the uh, in the example of of making a decision so a decision gets sent to you based on whether or not you express that you've got any interests in the particular areas that that suggestion covers so let's say that it's a uh, a software development uh, uh, suggestion and it's got to do with uh, say Node.js and Angular and if you've got those skills you would get that suggestion. If you haven't said that you've got those skills then the system is not going to send you that suggestion. Um, so we'll, we will have just the information, just the suggestion, you won't be able to see who's made the suggestion so you can't be influenced by that. And then there's a variety of tags around it. So you can add more tags to it if you think that the tags that have been suggested so far don't fully encapsulate the the skills necessary to have an opinion on that suggestion. And then you just agree or disagree with it. Um, And in doing so, the system is comparing the way that you've reacted to it to the way that everybody else has reacted. And if you tend to agree with the most highly skilled users, then it tends to suggest that you probably also have some skill. If you tend to agree with the most highly skilled users no more than you'd expect by chance, it tends to suggest that you're probably guessing. And so the system, over time, um, draws a judgment on how skilled you are in those various areas on the basis of that kind of system. Is the decision-making system behind all of that, is that very complex? Um, I don't think it's enormously complex. I mean, it seems that usually the the most effective systems are the, are, are relatively simple. Um, but really, you'd be better off speaking to my co-founder Alex about that because he's the he's the developer. At what stage of its development is Colony right now, and how uh, how far away is it from a soft or hard launch? Right, we're um, 
we're in a live um, public alpha, uh, sorry, private alpha at the moment. Um, we've we've got a, a number of groups who are participating, principally really in testing um, for us at the moment to help us solve a lot of the bugs. Um, how far are we from a, hard, a soft launch or, or indeed a hard launch? Well, there are two of us that work on Colony at the moment. Um, we're, our, our focus has been entirely on building our own software. We haven't implemented, uh, or rather we haven't integrated Ethereum into it yet, but clearly Ethereum is really the only choice nowadays uh, for the kind of things that we want to do. It would be it would be belligerence to try and use anything else, I think, at this point. Um, and so we are... Yeah, we're just kind of plowing away. We're trying to get all the functionality um, to be as it needs to be for it to be a really kind of... for it to be the best possible choice that you could make um, if you wanted to be able to have not only a distributed workforce, but also to have any kind of collaboration tool. So I guess that the competition would be things like Asana and Basecamp and things like that. But really our functionality is quite dramatically different from, from those. Um, so yeah, we, we need to be at least as good as those. Is this something you see as a, uh, as an evolution toward a better or yeah, as a process of, uh, of iterative innovation and your application of Ethereum to these prior solutions, uh, as a kind of, as a step forward ahead of what is, what has come before. I guess so. Uh, I think that I think that what, where it differs is that Colony actually tracks people's effort and, and tracks the value that they've contributed and allows you to distribute ownership of a project uh, accordingly. Um, I think that, you know, I've heard it referred to as recombinant innovation uh, before, which is essentially that you look at all of the different things that are going on uh, and have been done before and sometimes you can combine those things and create something which is dramatically new, uh, which is very, very different in character to to other uh, to, to anything else. And I think that's probably what Colony is. No real individual component of it is especially new, I suppose. But when you put those things together, it's it is something very different, something that hasn't existed before, and actually I don't think could have existed before. I think that um, Ethereum uh, and I suppose the blockchain technology in in a wider sense um, really makes possible a whole raft of new kinds of things that we could really have never imagined before, but we share a lot of commonalities with things that already do exist. Uh, You know, I didn't, uh, I just realized I didn't get, do you have, if you could just take a stab at a date when you think, um, a uh, a public release of Colony <laughs> will happen. I know that's it's unfair. I know. <laughs> uh, well, at the moment we're um, we're raising some seed funding, so everything will get a lot quicker when we're able to get some more people involved full time. Uh, and we're also always looking for contributors because, uh, of course, Colony is a colony. So uh, we are keen to invite awesome people to participate. So it will be a lot faster the more people get involved. That's, that's as <laughs> much as you've been <laughs> <on there. laughs> 
as someone who's never been involved in a software project, you know, I have no idea, but uh, it's the same answer I get every time. Um, really, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no worries. Um, cool. Well, I mean, I'd really like to. Uh, I'd really like to sign up, to be honest, so I can I can have a look at the platform because to me it seems like I don't know anyone in my uh, in my immediate sphere that I can collaborate on a number of projects with that I'd like to, uh, and um, and it seems like Colony would be a really great great way to field ideas and get a feeling for. Uh, fathom the community's interest and uh, and potentially find interested participants. Yeah, quite possibly. I think that the, there is one common misconception about Colony, which is that it it is at least not currently um, a sort of open platform where you kind of post your ideas and then people just jump in. It's invite only, so you would create your colony and then just like creating a startup, you invite people to that you want to um, you want to work with you. To get involved and so you can think of it a bit more like a slack group you can't just join any slack group you please you you have to be invited to do so that was a misconception i had i kind of was thinking about i was about to just say it sounds like it's a, a kind of a free market for ideas but i suppose that's what social media is for and there's no reason to integrate yeah. that yeah that whole that process into colony when you can just uh when you can promote it on uh, on social media yeah indeed i mean you need to get people involved who you think are who you trust essentially. Uh, but everybody can invite people. You just have to, other people have to agree that those people should, should join. And then it's the, uh, it's within that colony itself that the, that the tasks are farmed out. Exactly. Yeah. So, so if you're creating suggestions, they are private to your colony. Yeah, well, this, this is such an incredibly simple and elegant platform. It's uh, it's it's so it seems now suddenly so obvious. I've uh, I you know I keep running out of questions um, because it's it's so it's so self evident uh, how this how this should work. You know, well, I, I hope so. Uh, that's kind of the idea is to to make it seem very simple. Uh, actually, in use, it's pretty much like it's 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 not unlike Tinder in a way. You essentially make a suggestion at the top about things that you think should happen, and the the main panel that you're looking at is just one card after the next of what do you think about this suggestion? Do you agree or disagree? Who should do this job? Oh, what should be the uh, like define this brief? It's just one thing after the next. You just do it, and then you're done. That's uh, it's quite funny because that's again that's that recombinant innovation the the swiping left to right on. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's, exactly. It's just hopefully doing something more meaningful. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Let's hope so. Just to go back for my own uh, personal interest, how did you get? What was what was it about Bitcoin that interested you? And how is how did you wind up sticking with Ethereum? How did the uh, how did the the subject kind of like maintain uh, maintain your interest for so long from back in uh, two thousand and thirteen? <laughs> To the present. Okay, I think that I first became aware of Bitcoin in December, or no, maybe October, November 2012. Um, somebody had told me about Tor and sort of the Darknet, uh, and I was like, whoa, that sounds cool. What's that? I'm going to have to go and check that out. So, of course, I, you know, I've got into Tor and like, checked out the Silk Road and all those kind of things. And I just thought, oh, that's that's neat, fine. There's this Bitcoin thing that people used to pay 
with, okay, it's fine, it's nerd money, that's the end of it. And I just, my curiosity satisfied, I, I just wandered off. And then I think like three months later or something, I uh, heard about Bitcoin again and I found that the price had gone up to $30 or something and it had been, I don't know, $6, I guess, before. I was like, oh, that would have been so good to have had some money in Bitcoin at the time. Uh, but of course, now I've missed my chance. Oh, forget about it again. <laughs> and uh, so then the price I saw rocketed again a few months later. And um, and I think as with many people, the initial interest was purely speculative. It was it was dumb interest essentially, based on <laughs> on just money. <laughs> and uh, but the fact that it was gaining so much traction and people getting so interested it sort of fascinated me. Um, and then I was really interested in it purely as a, as a speculative instrument uh, for a long time until maybe November or December when I got suckered into a stupid uh, um, Bitcoin mining uh, rig scam and lost some Bitcoin. And I was like, you're a dumbass. This is exactly the kind of thing that you would never ordinarily allow to happen if you weren't overexcited about this thing. Uh, and, you know, I really should have been paying attention and knowing what I was doing rather than just throwing my Bitcoin about like there was no tomorrow. And um, that encouraged me to really, really learn about it. And the more I learned about it, the more excited I became. And then sort of not long later, I discovered that uh, Vitalik had, had written his white paper. And yeah, I, it just became so apparent to me so quickly how what the potential of for change in the way that everything operates, that, that sort of touches financial uh, transactions were made possible by the blockchain. And I don't think you can ignore that kind of, that kind of change. It's, you, you realize that that we could be at the at the beginning of of you know futures that that were never really predicted. Awesome, well said, man. I couldn't agree more. I was thinking of um, of Corey Doctorow's talk about the war on general purpose computing. I know. Are you aware of that one? I'm not actually. It sounds like something I should be though. Corey, he's like just a huge internet blogger guy. Too big for me to interview. Basically, like. <laughs> He features in the XKCD comic as his own character. So, you know, he's, uh, he's made it. <laughs> but he, um, he has a, had a, the a thesis for a while about how the um, general purpose kind of computer elements, you know, CPUs, et cetera, GPUs, et cetera, would ultimately become like application specific because of A, efficiency, and B, there's a point of control over, you know, computation is an incredibly powerful technology and manufacturing is a point of control. So that is the logical, uh, logical place that a, uh, a central power would go to regulate it. And he's, he's clearly looking back on, uh, on the crypto wars and, and what happened with encryption in the early nineties and applying kind of that to this to, you know, to computation, but, uh, as, as a, uh, democratizing technology, but Ethereum comes along and it blows his thesis out of the water because now, there's uh there's really no way to restrict access to computation. Uh you know, if you want to allow someone to use the, use colony, you have to allow them access to Ethereum and that and that opens them up to uh to unlimited kind of possibilities.
Yeah, it's pretty cool. That's um, I actually like your uh, like your jewelry. I bet it's I bet it's expensive though, isn't it? Oh hell yeah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was really expensive. I think the the for that danger line, I think it started at like quarter of a million dollars or something like that. Holy shit! Yeah, that was a lot of money. <laughs> that is awesome. You are onto a winner there. Ah, oh, that is that is really amazing. This is cool. This is what you should. This is about the time you should be promoting your your jewelry as well. Oh yeah, um, you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I think I, I kind of uh, got to a point where I felt like, eh, wait, is this helping anything? <laughs> I'm not sure it is. It seemed like a cool idea to begin with to uh, to be to make things that will be around like until the uh, the sun. Burns us all yeah. to was crisp and goes supernova, <laughs> or not? Yeah, but ultimately, it's just sitting in people's safes. It's not contributing anything to the world. I I, I know the feeling. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. And uh, so before that, I even I'd done like the I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's a big diamond skull. Have you ever seen that? It's like it was a hundred million dollar diamond skull for this uh, British artist called Damien Hurst. And, uh, I mean, that was, you know, that was a cool thing to have done, but the same kind of, hopefully my name will still continue to be attached to that for a while. But There it is. Holy, ah, oh, I did see this. This is insane. <laughs> for the love of God. <laughs> it's a good name, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Um, yeah, but, it you know, I don't know. There's something there's something I found unfulfilling for me personally. I mean, lots of people really get behind it, but I've just found I couldn't. Like, I don't know. I was just getting no no enjoyment from going in each day, which you know is a, a position of luxury to be able to make that make that distinction because lots of people can't think. Oh yeah, this is making me happy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they have well, to do exactly. it anyway. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I suppose there is a bit of obscenity to uh, to a diamond encrusted skull. Yeah, and I think that that in in defence of him was actually the point. I think he was like, I think that's what, what he was trying to argue in a way. Platinum diamond human teeth. So when the human teeth were going to go in, I was like, because I didn't know what it was for at that point. I was just like, what the fuck? That's, what are you doing that for? That's weird. Um, I didn't realize it was for an artist. It was, uh, I thought it was just going to be some like paperweight for an oligarch or something like that. Um, <laughs> so it was going to be crystal initially, but then, yeah, they decided to take the teeth out because they, they'd sent me the real skull through the post and I, I were like, okay, work out how to do this. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'd got, I'd got the actual skull sat on my, my computer desk as I was sort of figuring it all out. And then at some point they decided, yeah, we'll have that back, please. So we can send send it to uh, a dentist on Harley Street, which is like the, the fancy road in uh, in London where all the, the rich and famous go and get their medical needs attended to. And, uh, yeah, so that they could take the teeth out and put them in. That is bizarre. $100 million. <laughs> yeah, $100 million. It's really a lot of money. <laughs> It really is. <laughs> so what happened to the skull in the end? I have no idea. Occasionally it seems to get um, put on display from time to time. I think it was maybe bought by some kind of 
consortium, uh, investment consortium. But I don't really know. Stories abound. I'm sure you'd be able to find things online about what happened to it if you're interested. This is the kind of thing I'd expect to turn up on uh, the Curse of Oak Island or something, right? <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. It, it's it, it seems like something that should be in some kind of future version of Indiana Jones. Yeah, totally. It would be um, it would be if uh, it's kind of um, Blade Runner writ Indiana Jones, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and where can people find uh, you, uh, Colony, and your collaborators on it? Um, so you can find Colony at uh, colony.io. You can join our Slack group at um, slack.colony.io. You can check out the blog, blog.colony.io. This is all very uh, formulaic. Um, uh, on Twitter as Join Colony. Uh, I think that's about it. Yeah. Thanks again, Jack. I was on production and editing for this one. Show notes, credits, and links can be found on Twitter at EtherReview. We can also be reached at contact at etherreview.info. Cheers, guys.